H.E. News, episode number two. You're listening to Health Empowerment News with Croft Woodruff. This week, more on the swine flu, H1N1, possible mandatory vaccinations, and the natural alternative. Welcome back, everybody. We're here again in Vancouver in the Vancouver studios of Health Empowerment News. My name is Andrew McGivern, and I'm here with Croft Woodruff again. And... um Good day, uh, Andrew. It's great to be here again. Good day, Croft. And last night, we were both downtown at the art gallery, and there was a vaccine rally. You could say anti-vaccine rally, to be more precise, um, with tables set up, pamphlets with uh, information that people really need to know about uh, just what this uh, vaccine for the uh, H1N1 virus is all about, what's behind it, the World Health Organization, and the fact that the World Health Organization is pretty well run by the pharmaceutical companies. And you really have to know where they're at, because when you look at the, uh, what is it, Dow Jones uh, 500, the 10 top earners, the first 10 top earners uh, are 10 pharmaceutical companies. And it gets even uh, more revealing on how big they are because if you add up their revenue, they got more revenue than all other 490 combined. That's right. So they're giant companies and they have a huge influence. You actually spoke at the event last night. That's right. And you were talking about how can we trust the World Health Organization based on their past behavior. Maybe you want to go into that. Yeah, well, the the World Health Organization, and this this goes back about uh, 20 years or so, they had a program, uh, they were concerned, and I, I use the word advisedly, concerned about um, tetanus uh, infections in third world countries. And so they had put together a tetanus uh, vaccine, which uh, they were promoting in uh, third world countries in, uh, in Africa, uh, Latin America, as well in uh, places like the Philippines and Indonesia and the like. And on close examination, it turns out that this tetanus vaccine had a human uh, chorionic growth hormone. So why would, they, why would they include growth hormone in a vaccine? Well, that was the, you could say, the $64,000 question. Because uh, you're supposed to be dealing with tetanus, so and the, uh, the growth hormone, uh, why would they need that exactly? The problem is, of course, uh, it was, the vaccine was being promoted... Uh, among women of childbearing age. So that would be from the ages of around 13 or 14 to 45. But why not uh, men and why not children? Men are probably more susceptible to be infected with tetanus than women are, just because of the nature of uh, what men have to do to go out and work to make a living, and they'd be more exposed to uh, cuts and... uh, Rusty nails. uh, Rusty nails and anything else that could uh, infect them with tetanus. But on closer observation, we see that the vaccine has this uh, uh, HCG, if I can get this right. It is a basically 
a growth hormone. It's a growth hormone, by the way, that women will have in their blood when they're pregnant. And uh, it's there to stimulate the growth of the fetus. So when you have the uh, human growth hormone carried uh, in a vaccine, in this case, tetanus vaccine, the tetanus, of course, uh, plus other factors that are in the vaccine, turns on the immune system. That's the whole purpose of a vaccine is to turn the immune system on to deal with, in this case, tetanus. But it could be something else like a flu or, or it could be smallpox or, or it could be uh, meningitis, whatever. Uh, but in this case, of course, we're dealing with tetanus. And so the immune system is turned on uh, to uh, recognize and deal with a tetanus uh, virus. But at the same time, it is also triggered to uh, react against the uh, human growth hormone. So um, what happens then is that sometime after the uh, woman has had the vaccine, she, should she get pregnant, uh, what will happen, of course, is that when she becomes pregnant, her body's now producing its own human growth hormone naturally to deal with the needs of a growing fetus, to stimulate the growth of the fetus, in fact. And what happens is that the immune system destroys the human growth hormone and will, in fact, trigger an abortion. So that is how you have birth control using a vaccine. And as I said, this was carried out in places like the Philippines, Central American countries like Honduras and Guatemala, Europe, uh, primary African countries like Tanzania. And of course, this is done without the informed consent of the person receiving the vaccine. They should be entitled to know what is in the vaccine uh, and what effect it might have on them besides, you know, the usual reactions that you might expect from a vaccine, such as fever, chills, faintness, or, or maybe worse, uh, paralysis like Guillain-Barre syndrome. I think I pronounced that right, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Everybody gets that one mixed up. Uh, the French yeah, I've heard, uh, <laughs> heard a number of ways of pronouncing that one. I'm not sure which is correct. <laughs> but in any event, it's a matter of the right to informed consent obviously being denied uh, the people of these third world countries. This vaccine uh, project was funded by the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the Rockefeller Foundation was involved. And of course, the Rockefeller Foundation is, is actually uh, funded by uh, some major pharmaceutical companies that have connections with the foundation. I can think of uh, Roche. I can think of, I think, some standard oil subsidiary. Not too clear in my mind about that, but I know that there's strong pharmaceutical interests involved here, obviously, because they're the ones who manufacture the vaccine. And, and, of course, uh, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States was responsible for supplying, uh, I guess, the human growth hormone. And, of course, you have the, uh, the, the tetanus virus itself that they are modifying to be in a vaccine. So we're talking about population control obviously, using vaccines. Obviously. I mean, why else would you have human growth hormone and with a vaccine, knowing how the, uh, this is going to work, again, uh, by turning the immune system on against uh, the tetanus virus, at the same time you're turning the human immune system to attack the uh, human growth hormone. So long after the vaccine has been given and the woman gets pregnant, pregnancy doesn't last because uh, the 
immune system uh, destroying the human growth hormone that has been produced naturally by the body triggers an abortion. So the World Health Organization is mandating or strongly encouraging member countries to vaccinate their entire populations. Over there, this is what they, for the swine flu, the H1N1 uh, virus that they're talking about. That's correct, yes. Yeah. Now, do you believe that Canada is going to impose mandatory vaccinations on the population here? Well, if they do, they'll be in violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, that we subscribe to in, in our Constitution. But it's also, I think, a violation of the Geneva Convention that people are not to be forced uh, to accept a vaccine against their will. Uh, and in the co convention itself, it reads that if you're traveling and uh, there is a, a viral outbreak of some sort or another, if uh, you refuse a vaccine, the only thing that the, uh, the host country can do is quarantine you, and that will be in a hotel at their expense. And needless to say, they won't want to keep you around too long because, of course, uh, they're paying for it. That's what the convention is all about is, again, protecting your rights as a human being not to be forced to take things against your will or be injected with these things. There was a speaker last night that also got right to the point. Uh, oh, Inga Hanley? Inga Hanley. Yes. Uh, she said that it doesn't matter whether or not the, the vaccine is, is harmful or whether it's safe, but what the key point is is the government cannot have the right to decide whether or not you're taking a vaccine. They can't force it on you. No, and uh, and once we allow that to happen, then we're giving up our rights. Well, to yeah, our, well, uh, in, in essence, you are giving up all your rights because they can do anything they want. And in fact, if you want to just look at the situation with regard to uh, the United States uh, rendition program, where uh, people are seized or turned in for a nice sum of money, this has happened in Pakistan and other places. People end up in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and uh, they are tortured to uh, try and extract information. And these are people that, uh, first of all, have, it hasn't been proven that they are terrorists, which is the rationale for uh, detaining them. So they haven't been subjected to a trial, and yet they're being tortured. And so far, I don't think they've convicted anybody under this torture program. And, of course, there's quite a scandal coming out about that. But it's the same thing. People are being uh, forced against their will uh, to accept things that under normal circumstances they would never touch. The state of Massachusetts has a law pending mm -hmm. in the legislature there, which will, looks like, force vaccinations on the population of that state. That's, that's very interesting because, of course, the state legislature of Massachusetts right now is both the Senate and the Assembly, as well as the, uh, the governor's office, all Democrats. It's overwhelmingly Democrat, uh, and usually the Democrats are not so um, dictatorial as you might expect from uh, the Republicans and uh, some of the more reactionary Republicans. But when you consider that what Robert F. Kennedy Jr., this is the son of the assassinated Robert F. Kennedy, and of course he's the nephew of of the just recently passed away, Ted Kennedy, the senator from Massachusetts. And he mentions this, uh, in vaccine court, the plaintiffs have no right to discovery either against the pharmaceutical industry or the government since autism is a behavioral affliction rather than a precisely divine biological industry. Because we're talking about autism and vaccines and the connection. And uh, epidemiological studies are critical to establishing 
the causation of, of autism. But the greatest source of the data is the vaccine safety data link of the U.S. governments. It has maintained medical records of hundreds of thousands of vaccinated children, which Health and Human Services has gone to great lengths to keep out of the hands of the plaintiff's attorneys and independent scientists. And unfortunately, the vaccine court has judicially anointed this corrupt concealment by consistently denying every motion by practitioners to view the vaccine safety database. And the, the raw data collected by the vaccine uh, safety data link would undoubtedly prove the epidemiological evidence needed to understand the relationship between vaccines and autism. But this would also involve any other condition where vaccines are causing a certain reaction or condition. And certainly the raw data collected in the, this vaccine database would undoubtedly provide the epidemiological evidence. I think I'm kind of repeating myself on this, but the absence of such studies makes it easy for judges to say to plaintiffs they have not met their, their burden of uh, growing causation. And Kennedy goes on to say, meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control have acti has actively, openly, and systematically suppressed and defunded epidemiological studies that might establish a causal link. The Centers for Disease Control has ignored repeated pleadings that it fund peer-reviewed studies of unvaccinated uh, American cohorts like the Amish and homeschooled children. At the same time, the agency has worked overtime ginning up a series of fatally flawed European studies purporting to dispute the link even a cursory critical examination reveals that the off-cited Danish, English, and Italian studies are ranked tobacco science. Many of them were funded by the Centers for Disease Control, a badly compromised agency performed by vaccine industry scientists and published in miserably conflicted journals. And that's from Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., and uh, that was written up in the Huffington Post this past February the 12th of 2009. So what is the alternative to the vaccine? Well, uh, good personal hygiene for one. Not just personal hygiene, but also good household hygiene as well. But uh, there are so many things that are antiviral, like good old sunshine. It's interesting. We, generally, we don't have a flu season until uh, the fall equinox. And by the time the spring equinox comes around, it's pretty well over with as far as any flu epidemic is concerned. And then the big coincidence is the fact that between the fall and the spring equinox is when the sun is on the wane, and it's on its deepest wane in the Dece middle of December, December the 21st or thereabouts. And as a consequence, that's when people are most deficient in their vitamin D in the Northern Hemisphere. We never hear about flu epidemics in the uh, winter months in the Southern Hemisphere because actually that's their summer months. So we only hear about flu vaccines when there are winter months. In this case, the Northern Hemisphere. And then, of course, it will be after we're in our summer, they'll be in their, their winter months. So there it is. There is definitely a vitamin D connection. But a vitamin D connection with other conditions, too. I might just mention multiple sclerosis, for instance. 
uh, very likely uh, certain other diseases like ALS and uh, Lou Gehrig's syndrome. For cancer short. is uh, is on the list as well. And cancer is also on the list. So various uh, a number of cancers from prostate, bowel uh, for women, breast cancer for men, of course, prostate, and apparently brain cancer, and so on. And let's face it, over the years, we've had the scare campaign about, you know, exposure to sunshine, the ultraviolet rays, and cancer. And it's now boiling down to the fact that it's, we haven't been getting enough vitamin D rather than too much. In fact, the body can produce uh, something like 20,000 international units of vitamin D on the skin, a full body exposure in a matter of about 10 minutes or so in the, in the heat of the day from 10 a.m. until 4 in the afternoon. And uh, so uh, you don't need very much exposure of the full summer sun to make your vitamin D. Of course, as the sun is lower in the horizon, as the season is on the wane, then uh, it's going to take a little longer. And, uh, and of course, we are definitely short of vitamin D in the, in the, in the northern hemisphere. Now, is it possible to overdose on vitamin D from the sun? 20,000 international unit, uh, units in less than 10 minutes of full body exposure to the sun. I haven't heard of anybody getting an overdose of vitamin D that way. I think on the Vitamin D Council website, they were saying that your body, as soon as you start to turn pink, your skin's ability to produce vitamin D diminishes. Or so it's a natural defense mechanism against vitamin D is actually the, once you start start burning, it doesn't happen. But even then, when it comes to vitamin D overdose, there have been studies where they're dealing with men with prostate cancer and they're giving them 2,000 international units of uh, vitamin D a day. And uh, one of the uh, top scientific researchers, uh, Dr. Reinhold Wieth, is urging the, the doctors to give them more. Never mind 2,000, give them more. Give them 3,000, 4,000 IUs uh, of vitamin D. And, uh, but those studies were very successful, and these were done at the uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Uh, several years ago, and the report was sometime in November, um, about nine. No, I guess around 2004. So, uh, and of course, I've seen cases where people are taking a tremendous amount of uh, vitamin A and D from fish liver oil. You know, you can get a capsule of what they call super halibut liver oil. You get 10,000 units, international units of vitamin A and something like 400 international units of vitamin D. But somebody actually had a situation where they're... uh, three-and-a-half-year-old infant got into a 180-size bottle of vitamin A and D from fish liver oil. The count of the remaining vitamins A and D showed that allowing for maybe one or two falling in between the cracks in the furniture, he had to have swallowed at least 100 caps. Well, 100 times 10,000 is a million international units of vitamin A, so that uh, dispels any concern about vitamin A toxicity. And, of course, the vitamin D, you're looking at 40,000 international units, if I have that right. 100 times 400, 40,000, yes. Mm -hmm. So, um, obviously, 40,000 international units had no effect on this infant, and uh, this individual, and, and by the way, uh, this is just information only. If you're concerned about uh, taking these things, you should be working with your health prote- practitioner or, or a medical doctor who is knowledgeable in this area. 
It's always possible to overdose on anything. But if somebody is concerned about the vaccine and is looking for other ways to deal with this and they need information and they need help, where do you recommend that they find a medical practitioner or, or a, uh, either an ND or an MD who is skilled in, the, in dealing with these conditions naturally? Google the American College for the Advancement of Medicine, ACAM. ACAM. Yeah, the American College for the Advancement of Medicine. They are based in uh, Southern California. If you Google ACAM or the full name American College for Advancement of Medicine, you'll get to their website. And they have uh, a list of uh, medical doctors worldwide. So you're bound to find somebody in your particular area that is a member and uh, pretty well follows their precepts. Which is to be knowledgeable in natural medicine or That's molecular right. and, medicine. That's uh, right, and using vitamins in their practice, vitamins and minerals, and even herbals as well. Because mm-hmm. uh, all her- herbals have a place. Uh, certain herbs are potently antibacterial and anti- antiviral. Uh, we can think of garlic, for instance. Garlic, yeah. Uh, also and, uh, oil uh, of Echinacea oregano. is another one. Oil of oregano is a powerful. A lot of these aromatic herbs and herbal oils, like uh, oil of oregano, thyme, uh, and rosemary, they have uh, potent antiviral activity. Tea tree oil is another one, although in my experience, the most potent of all is oil of oregano. And uh, You know, uh, you can put a drop under the tongue, and it, uh, it burns. Uh, it doesn't damage tissue. It just gives you a powerful burning sensation. And, uh, and of course, if you're dealing with an infant, uh, you just uh, rub a drop on the sole of the infant's feet, and it will, it will go into the skin and get into the bloodstream and do its work. You can use it topically for any scratch or abrasion and uh, get similar routes, even insect bites and stings. And, of course, we both know our friend uh, Greg Gary from Trinity Healthy Living Products, mm-hmm. who has a product called Flu Stop. Yes. Uh, which is a herbal spray. It's an oral spray. You spray it to the back of the throat where yes. the virus initially replicates and spreads throughout the body. And it's, it seems to be an amazing product. I've personally seen a lot of people use it and have great results. Yeah. So Greg Gary, I'm sure he would love to come on the show and talk about Flu Stop, as would your friend Dr. Tams. Yes. And of course, Dr. Tams originally was a medical doctor. And of course, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is responsible for licensing medical doctors, didn't exactly like Dr. Tams and the work that he was doing uh, using uh, natural uh, remedies and therapies, particularly in the field of psychiatry, which is, really was his training. Uh, and, of course, uh, he lost his license. So uh, probably the biggest favor they could have done him because he went into naturopathy, got his degree as a doctor of naturopathic medicine, and uh, Dr. Tams has never looked back. Uh, he's uh, done very well for himself and, and obviously for his patients as well. So look for future episodes. We're going to have people like this on, experts in this field. Uh, yeah, we'll have Dr. Chris Shaw, who's an expert in the field of virology, and this should prove to be very interesting. And we'll also have a couple of people from the uh, anti-vaccine movement to let us know what's going on. And, you and can bring us up to date. And what do you recommend, Croft, for people who want to let the government know? It's an email to your MP, uh, not only to your MP, but a CC to uh, the leader of your MP's uh, political party. But better than that, find out where your MP's got his local office and get an appointment to talk to him. 
because uh, person to person can be far more effective than an email, which can be just brushed off. A personal letter is a good idea as well, although if you run into, uh, like some MPs I run into, uh, it might be just uh, a letter that's going to end up in the waste paper basket. They don't want to hear from you, but uh, that's too bad. person like that, that's the time to tell your friends, uh, here is an idiot uh, that somehow or another got elected to Parliament. Uh, he needs to be worked on, and uh, given the facts of life when it comes to uh, forceful vaccinations and violations of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And speaking of rights and freedoms, we're getting to the core of the issue here now, and, and really, the Charter of Health Freedom. If the Charter of Health Freedom was enacted, we would be protected hopefully. Uh, by default. We, we hopefully. But, you know, there's an old saying that rules are meant to be broken. And, uh, and more often than not, the constitutional rights are, uh, are observed more in, in, in the breaking of those rights rather than in, in, uh, in enforcing those rights. But uh, in other words, we have to be vigilant as, as, uh, as individuals, as private individuals, uh, in terms of not only just our own welfare, but the welfare of our, our, our family, our, our parents. Uh, they have to be kept up to date as well as our children and, and our siblings and our friends and neighbors. You know, it's, it's our duty to keep them informed. And uh, you might run into some roadblocks. Uh, I noticed that uh, in the uh, meeting that we attended yesterday that there was a couple of people there that uh, were quite antagonistic uh, towards... Uh, people that were trying to uh, put a case across regarding uh, the dangers of the vaccines and the reason why reasons why we should resist compulsory vaccinations, but uh, you'll always run into that. Um, the truth hurts, you know. Well, there's always going to be disagreements, but the the point is is that forced vaccinations is the issue. That's correct. If you want a vaccine. Then you that's should, your right. That's your right to have it, but yeah. it's also your right to refuse. That's right, and, and it isn't your right to force it on uh, somebody else who doesn't want it. Okay, so that wraps up uh, what we're going to talk about for this episode. We'll be back again next week. I can't see this topic going away anytime soon. We'll probably be talking about more on H1N1, more on the vaccine. And we'll have more, I think, on the, uh, particularly on the, the mercury uh, problem with vaccines. And by the way... Uh, that's one of the components of uh, the H1N1 vaccine is mercury. And unfortunately, it isn't a matter of getting just one shot. It's a matter of possibly uh, definitely two shots, maybe even three shots. So uh, this is something that people have to be aware of. That isn't just going to be one shot. It's going to be at least two and maybe three shots. And already, of course, they're actually experimenting on people with this vaccine and uh, how, how can you experiment on people on a vaccine? You don't know whether or not it really works in terms of uh, effectiveness, efficacy, as they say. Um, but more important, you should be able to determine the safety long before you worry about efficacy. Because if it isn't safe, then effectiveness is out the window. It's useless. And enforcement of, of a mandatory vaccine program, yeah. like they're talking about in the state of Massachusetts, where if you refuse a vaccine you're subject to $1,000 fines per day yes. that you're not in compliance. Yeah. Uh, Which, possible of course, jail is, time. That's absolutely absurd, that kind of legislation uh, to uh, hit people like that. And especially, uh, <laughs> I wonder, uh, wonder who gets fined $1,000 per day for implementing a program that actually uh, makes people deadly ill 
uh, might cripple them for life or, or even worse, kill them. Uh, we never see the accountability in those areas uh, in the health bureaucracy, whether it's uh, in uh, Canada or the United States or elsewhere. Uh, we can think of what happened with the uh, vaccine uh, fiasco of 1976. That was a swine flu vaccine. It was supposed to be N1, H1N1 like we're facing today. And we find out that the, the damage that was done to uh, thousands of people is far, far worse than uh, what our media was letting on. And that's another problem we have to talk about is the failure of our media to uh, really do what they're supposed to do, and that is to keep us informed, not just the one side, the pharmaceutical side, uh, the medical establishment side. We need to know all sides of the story so we can make up our own minds on these issues. By the way, I just want to tell you one other thing. In talking about uh, accountability, the heads of the uh, Centers for Disease Control that were responsible for the swine flu fiasco of 1976, the sickness and crippling of thousands of American citizens, not to mention uh, a significant number of deaths. What uh, Did these people uh, get fired from their jobs for being incorrect in what they had to say about this vaccine and this epidemic that it was supposed to be preventing? No, uh, one of them became head of the New York Department of Health. New York City Department of Health. So that was his reward when the man should have been fired and blackballed. I mean, that's what happens to uh, any other quack or charlatan for, uh, you know, sending us down the river. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not how it works when you've got a group of corporations that have absolute power. That's right. And, of course, the fact is, is that the health bureaucracy is laced with people from industry. Uh, all, immediately, uh, it's, that's a conflict of interest. They're there to serve their interests and not the, the welfare and interests of the uh, general public. And it's not just the, the health industry. Uh, oh, no. You know, it's the, the food, food industry, the which food is an industry. issue we'll be dealing with in future episodes for sure, because there's a ton of information on that score. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Empowerment News with Croft Woodruff. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you next week.